0: Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to the book of Ezekiel, where we're turning to Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. And this is part two of a study that we uh, began last Sunday evening. On Sundays uh, this year, we've been looking at the, the passages, dealing with things to do with the coming of the Lord and the times leading up to this. And last Sunday, we started looking at Ezekiel 38, and today we're looking at the following chapter of 39. This is one of the places in the Bible where you have two chapters devoted to the same subject. There's three places I know of in the Bible like that. Genesis chapter 1, you have creation laid out. And then in chapter 2, it goes back over creation but focuses in on some details. We have the same thing at the other end of the Bible with the new creation in Revelation 21, where we have the new creation the heavens and the earth uh, made clear and then in chapter 22 it goes into more detail again goes back over that but in a more focused way and that's what we have here in the middle of the bible as well so beginning middle and end and in ezekiel 38 uh, we saw uh, some events last time from the ministry of ezekiel and today we continue that with the second passage in chapter 39 And Ezekiel was a prophet who lived in the land of Babylon. He was a Jew who had been taken captive there. He was a priest, but he ended up being a prophet because there was no temple in Babylon, but God gave him a ministry as a prophet. And in the year 573 BC, these were the messages he was given for the future of Israel. And tonight we're looking, this morning we're looking at verses 1 to 24 uh, as the Lord helps us. Verse 1 Son of man, which is the prophetic name for Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around and br- drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains. Of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken declares the sovereign lord i will send fire on magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands and they will know that i am the lord i will make known my holy name among my people israel i will no longer let my holy name be profaned and the nations will know that i uh, that i the lord am the holy one in israel it is coming It will surely take place, declares the sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. Then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and see the weapons for fuel and burn them up. The small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the war clubs and spears. For seven years they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel and they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them declares the sovereign Lord. On that day I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who travel east towards the sea. It will block the way of travellers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the dead. All the people of the land will bury them. And the day I am glorified will be a memorable day for them declares the sovereign Lord men will be regularly employed to cleanse the land some will go throughout the land and in addition to them others will bury those that remain on the ground at the end of the seven months they will begin their search as they go through the land and one of them sees a human bone he will set up a marker beside it until the grave diggers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog also a town called Hamona will be there And so they will cleanse the land. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you. The great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as If they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you. You will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will display my glory among the nations and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them from that day forward the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me so I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies and they all fell by the sword I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offences and I hid my face from them. Please keep your Bibles open there. Ira Kelman is a a Christian from America who is actually a a converted Jew, um, but he's a Jewish American. And uh, he has a a preaching ministry, as an evangelist, and he has a rather extraordinary testimony. Because back in 1987, he was preaching in a church in Indianapolis one Sunday evening when a thunderstorm started and he got struck by lightning. The building got struck and he himself was uh, in the line uh, of the surge uh, from the lightning. He said, it was like a hundred cannons going off. Flames jumped off the roof. The place filled up with smoke and the smell of sulfur. And people said later that their ears were ringing for hours and hours. It went down my lapel mic and blasted me on the chest and threw me back. I felt this force catching me and I didn't get knocked down. I was a little punch drunk to start with and I just said I never got hit by lightning before and went on preaching. It didn't faze me. There was a man in the congregation whose wife had dragged him along to the meeting. He sold surge protection equipment for computers and wrote me a letter later saying I should have been killed. It was just God's protection upon me. I didn't have a mark or a singe, nothing, no hearing or memory loss. The only thing was that my heart was beating faster for probably a couple of hours at first. What an amazing testimony. Now, that guy, he was in the line of a storm and God didn't stop the storm, but God did protect him in it. And that's what uh, we're going to see here in this chapter of Ezekiel chapter 39. Uh, I love that story because it seems to illustrate in some small way what happens here in this passage for the nation of Israel. Because in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we have an extraordinary prophecy from Ezekiel's, portion which is to do with what we call eschatology the things of the end and from chapter 36 through to the end of the book especially uh, is the eschatological part of the book which is looking forward to the end times and in this passage Ezekiel describes an invasion of a confederacy of nations coming against Israel which comes like a storm If you go back to chapter 38 and verse 9 you'll notice he said it like this. He said addressing the enemy coming he said you and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up advancing like a storm you will be like a cloud covering the land and uh, just as you sometimes might see storm clouds coming towards you in the distance and if you've seen it with the shadows falling across the hills if it's a fast-moving storm you get that feeling of something coming towards you so these nations are going to come down on the land of Israel and uh, they are going to come advancing like a storm against Israel and yet The same power that the Lord Jesus displayed on the Lake of Galilee when he stilled the storm and protected his disciples on that stormy situation. He's going to display in this prophetic battle to come again. And he is going to protect Israel from that storm coming against them. And what makes this such a fascinating study is that this prophecy has obviously never been fulfilled. As we look at this today, we will see there's things in here, you, you, there's nothing you can point to that says, oh yeah, well that happened in, you know, in the days of the Maccabees or something like that. This has never been fulfilled, so it's unfulfilled prophecy, it's future fulfillment to come. And what makes it even more interesting is that it seems to involve the nation of Russia Now, I'm not making that up. Uh, You'll notice in verse 1, it says, Son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, Gog is, uh, if I put this up here, Gog is the name for the leader, but it's not a literal name. It's a name which just means a great leader. There were kings in the Bible who used this because it had a—it uh, a, meant the great one or it meant the big one, um, Gog. And so you have names like Og, king of Bashan or agag the king of the amalekites uh, and they took um, uh, that name and made it sort of their name we actually still use that name as well we've got some hills i understand in cambridgeshire that are called the gog and magog hills and if you ever watch the lord mayor's parade in london uh, there are two giants in that parade and they're called gog and magog the name means big one, great one, And this is the, the, the spiritual name, if you like, to the leader and his land. But the specific mention of Russia is in the name Rosh. Now, in your NIV, if you're using an NIV like me this morning, uh, it didn't say Rosh, but it did say chief prince. And if you look at the footnote there, there's a little footnote in my NIV, and it says Orgog, prince of Rosh. And uh, the reason is the Hebrew word Rosh can be used as a, a, a title, meaning head, uh, Rosh Shavar, head teacher, um, or it can be used as a name. And Bible commentators are largely convinced that this here is a name, especially uh, when we go back in history and we see that the name Rosh turns into Russia. And uh, the two other names mentioned here are Meshek and Tubal. And those two names, Meshek comes from, uh, develops into Muscovy, which develops into Moscow. And Tubal is Tobolsk. Now, those are the capitals of East and West Russia. Such a big land, um, but you have uh, Siberian capital, Tobolsk, on the river Tobolsk. And uh, that is where we see Russia in this passage now a lot of people uh when you start preaching this they go you're just reading into it what you want to read it's cold war fever you know ever since the cold war we've had this sort of russians are coming type thing this is not this is historically the view of bible interpreters look i quoted last week john gill who was the predecessor to charles spurgeon at the new park street pulpit in in london um i'll quote somebody else in a minute but i want to show you this first of all even if you look on a map you can see that this is russia if you look in verse 2 he says i will turn you around and drag you along i will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of israel now if you put your finger like i've just in the corner there put my finger on the map of israel and trace it as far north you go through Syria through Armenia and you go up to Russia the far north and if you kept going actually you'd come to Moscow and so what just by putting your finger on a map and tracing it as he says here I will bring you out of the far north this is where they're coming from and uh, as I said, this is not uh, a new but a, a historical interpretation. Let me give you two quotes here. Uh, Bishop Louth, who was a Bible commentator in the 1700s, in 1710, he said, Rosh, taken as a proper name in Ezekiel, signifies the inhabitants of Scythia. You've heard of the Scythians. It's quoted actually in the New Testament, more than the new, Old, uh, from whom the modern Russians derived their name." That was 1710, a long time before we got Cold War fever. Uh, Matthew Henry, my favorite Bible commentator, he says, some think they find them afar off in Scythia, Tartary, and Russia, writing in the 1600s, being a Puritan. So this is not a new interpretation, but it, it strikes us as being a little bit sensational because of the fact that it's talking about a big nation in the world that we can see today. Actually, when Ezekiel wrote this, Russia wasn't a big nation. Uh, And it only really developed over time that Russia, not only in size, but in power, became more significant and more threatening on the world scene. You did have the Scythian invaders coming down from the steppes of Russia, uh, and that's why you have the... Great Wall of China built, and in Arabic it's called the Wall Al Magog to prevent against the invaders from the north. And uh, there's many other instances of Russia being fierce. But the size and strength that we see today is something that is relatively new. So this is a remarkable prophecy in that it seems to predict Russia coming against Israel in the last days like a storm. But not only do they come on their own, if you look in verse 4, it says, On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you there's going to be a confederacy of nations who come with russia in this attack and if you go back to the previous chapter we have these nations mentioned in verse 5 he says paja kush and put with, will be with them all with shields and helmets also goma with all its troops and Beth Tagama from the far north with all its troops the many nations with you now you say well I don't know those nations they don't exist anymore well they do but they exist with different names you see names change over time don't they Uh, we have a place today called St. Petersburg but it wasn't always called St. Petersburg it was called Leningrad before that and Petrograd before that and it's changed its name and uh, this is what's happened. Well, Persia is Iran. In fact, we have some Persian friends. And uh, they say we are Persians. We're not Arabs. Don't confuse us. Uh, and they, they still use that name for themselves. Persia is Iran. Kush, in the Bible, is Ethiopia down to Sudan, Africa. Uh, and Libya is uh, by the name of Put. Uh, and the harder one to interpret is Goma. There's two interpretations for that. Uh, One is that it is Armenia, and you saw Armenia on the map, but in the Ashkenazi Jewish scriptures, it interprets, has a footnote, for Germany. The Ashkenazi Jews say it's Germany. Um, And there is a link, actually, even between Germany and the Iranians, the Aryan race, and so on, which is where the name Iran comes from. And Beth Turgama, the house, Beth is house, Turgama is Turkey. Now, that's a fascinating uh, alliance of nations coming against Israel in the last days, isn't it? Because we can see how anti-Semitic those nations largely are today. Iran has made no secret of her uh, nuclear ambition. And she is the one who is fueling Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis and all this and uh, stirring up against Israel. So their part in this is no surprise. But it's is amazing, isn't it, that the Bible was ahead of the newspaper and ahead of the world situation in prophesying this confederacy. Kush, Ethiopia, and Sudan. Russia, the great untold story in the news at the moment is the Russian invasion of, Israel, of Africa. Wagner troops, now operating under different names, are getting their fingers into Mali and into many other Sudan and many African nations. And uh, I watched a a video uh, uh, program this week by the Wall Street Journal News in America on on, on, uh, Wagner group going into Africa. It's quite alarming, it's quite alarming. But you can see then the power coming up Germany has always been, of course, um, had a, this historical thing with the Jewish people, especially since World War II, um, and Turkey today has strangely turned anti-Semitic again. Um, uh, the, in recent days, they weren't always. In fact, the, the uh, Turkish and the Jews used to practice military maneuvers together, but in later years, just recently, President Erdogan has become anti Israel so what a fascinating thing in light of today's news and of course when these nations come against Israel they're coming from the north and the south you have this pincer movement on Israel in the middle Martin Luther used to say Israel is like uh, a, a little nation caught between the doorway and the hinge so that when the door closes it squashes and this is Africa and Europe closing in on little Israel and This is what's going to happen in the last days. They're going to come like a storm and it's going to look like it's going to be the destruction of Israel. But praise God, the Lord is going to deliver them. And it's going to be for the preservation of the nation, for their future salvation where they turn to the Lord Jesus at the end of the tribulation and are saved. He's not going to let this nation be destroyed prematurely before they've had a time that time of repentance and come back to him. So he is going to protect them. And I, I think with all that Russia's doing in the news at the moment, we'd better study this. You know, someone has said the best time to study prophecy is before it happens, (laughs) you know, and that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And this is something that we want to do. Tim LaHaye said this, when I started preaching on prophecy and predicted on the basis of this text that Russia would go down against Israel someday, people laughed. Today, no one laughs at the possibility, for it seems only a question of time. And I think that's absolutely right. So let's have a look at this passage in light of these three headings. The attack, the aftermath, and the awareness, because this is how it's divided up in the passage. First of all, let's see the attack. The attack comes fast and furious, it seems. uh, But as quickly as it comes, so does the judgment of God on the invaders. In verse 2, the Lord says, I will turn you around and drag you along. Now well, I mentioned this last week and if you want to go back to chapter 38 online, you can do that and hear more of what we said. But uh, in the previous passage it, it makes it clear that Gog is being turned around from being in one situation to come down against Israel. And that makes it very interesting with our current situation today, because Russia is very active as you know in Ukraine but hasn't taken Ukraine it's almost as if and I'm not predicting they won't take Ukraine uh, but I'm just saying it's almost as if they can't get anywhere here so they change their minds and decide to take on a different target but it's actually God who is bringing them down to Israel Why? Because he is going to judge them there uh, for their sins uh, against the Jewish people historically and against the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I mentioned that last time, so I don't want to go over ground twice. But he says, I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. So they come down to the mountains. Now, the mountains go right the way down Israel. Don't just think in terms of the Golan Heights, the mountains. Jerusalem is on a mountain, and it's mountains all the way down, really, uh, a a series of mountains. And you have a a mountain ridge running down Israel. And the mountains of Israel uh, especially were conquered in the 1967 war. So this is very, very amazing, really, in light of today's situation. And verse 3, the Lord says, Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. So, first of all, he starts off by attacking the weapons so that the weapons become unusable in their hands. Now, what that actually means, um, we'll have to wait and see. Does that mean that uh, the God literally, uh, it, they're literally struck with some sort of. Um, uh, in the capability to hold their weapons uh, do they suddenly are they struck with an illness or does something happen to the weapons to make them not work i don't know but it, god stops the weapons the arrows from being fired and stops them from being used but then he attacks the people themselves in verse four on the mountains of israel you will fall you and all your troops and the nations with you i will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals so the the, the men themselves then actually fall and are destroyed Now, we're not told here how that happens, but if you go back to chapter 38 and verse 22, we have a very graphic description of how God attacks the people. He says, I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. God is going to use the weather in extreme ways, flooding rain, huge hailstones like he used in Egypt and the plague, and he is going to pour sulfur out of heaven on them like he did at Sodom and Gomorrah. This is why I can say confidently this has never happened if this had happened this would be history it would, everybody would know about it this is one of the ways we know this prophecy has never been fulfilled and uh, yet god says he's going to do it and he is literally going to pour hell out of heaven onto these people who dare to come against the nation that he has elected and chosen and then he says in verse 5, you will fall in the open field for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. It seems that God is going to stop them before they get to the cities and they're going to fall in the fields, which is wonderful that that happens that way. But in verse 8, he says, I will send fire on Magog. That's the land they came from and on those who live in safety in the coastlands and they will know that I am the Lord. So God not only judges the nation that has come down into the land, but God actually judges the home countries as well. And there's actually going to be a huge judgment that, of fire that's going to fall on the land of Russia. And it's going to result in huge uh, loss of life as the judgment of God for this attack. In fact, it's very interesting. Um, The King James Version has it worded this way. He says, I will turn thee back and will leave but the sixth part of thee. Now, if that is the correct interpretation, and I'm not an expert to be able to say that it is, but I I, I think it's fascinating, but if that is the correct interpretation, this is going to be a death toll like you've never seen in a war before, where only a sixth part remains of this massive foe attacking israel you think of the size of russia the the hordes of people there are and only a sixth of the nation will survive afterwards now that for me helps explain why in the book of revelation we don't read about russia where's russia gone You know, such a superpower on the earth, and if we've got a European dictator going to rise, as we see in the Antichrist, why doesn't Russia stop him? Because Russia has been taken out of action beforehand. It helps lay lay out the ground uh, for the coming tribulation, um, as we see in the other places of prophecy. I love the Bible. You know, it fits, it makes sense. You know, it comes together and like a jigsaw, you put the pieces in place and it starts to all make sense. Uh, And this is how this nation will be judged. But I, I just want you to take that on board, that this attack... God is going to deal with, and He is going to stop in such a remarkable way, with uh, such amazing intervention. And this is going to be God's fulfillment of His prophecy to Israel from Isaiah, where He said, in Isaiah 54:17, "No weapon formed against you shall prosper or shall prevail." God isn't going to let the nation of Israel be destroyed." They are his people, and they are going to continue until the end. They're the nation the Savior came from, and they will be preserved by the hand of God on the national scene. Now you say, well, that's great for Israel, but what about me? I've come to church this morning, and I've got problems of my own. What about me? Have you got anything for me? Well, I want to tell you this. If you're a born-again believer, the God of Israel is your God. And he cares for you equally. And you also have a covenant with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the words that Paul said at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom." And that a wonderful verse for us New Testament Christians in light of this. There was Paul actually in prison in Rome, about to be executed, but he says, God's gonna deliver me from every evil attack. You say, Well, how does that work then? God's gonna bring him safely to heaven. That's God's plan. And he's gonna bring you and me safely to heaven too. And very often that will result in supernatural protection along the way as well. I just got sticking a little story just up. Keep you with me here so you don't lose you. But uh, I came across this story about this pastor in Liberia in a book of testimonies that uh, I inherited from my father when he died. And James, not sure how you say his surname, uh, Marwich. James Marwich lived in Liberia at the time of the Troubles and there was rebel uprisings and there were rebel groups that were fighting each other. And in his village, James and Margaret, who were pastor of the church, they were, they were visited by a group of rebels who were looking for another group of rebels and they believed they had been here and they thought that these villagers were hiding them. They thought James and Margaret and the other people in this village were hiding them. And they said, no, we're not hiding them. You know, we haven't seen them. But they, they didn't believe them. And they said, if you're on their side, we're going to kill you. And the man got out his gun. The rebel leader got out his gun. And it kept jamming every time. And he got so frustrated. He said, no one could kill me. I've got this. And he held up this lucky charm. He was frightened of something. And then he said, I can't kill you. He said, every time I see you, I remember my father, who was a pastor. And he pulled out of his pocket a Gideon Testament. And he said, I'll let you live this time, and walked away. What a story of deliverance, you know. I mean, God rescued that. They they had no weapons. They had nothing to defend themselves with. But God stopped that man. It wasn't their time. God was going to bring them uh, safely to his kingdom in his time. So be encouraged. If you're in a battle at this time, the Lord has the power to still the storm like he stilled the storm on Galilee. He has the power to help you as well. Let's see the second thing here. Let's see the aftermath of this war in verses 9 through to 20. Because what's remarkable about this particular war in the Bible, and you'll notice actually when you study the Bible, how much of scripture actually does deal with conflicts, this battle has most of its space taken in this chapter to the clear up afterwards rather than the events on the battlefield. And this is one of the remarkable things um, because the aftermath is a big feature. And again, it's one of the reasons we know this hasn't happened. What is going to happen at the end of this battle? Well, three things are going to happen. Israel is going to end up burning the weapons of their invaders if you look in verse 9 it says then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up the small and large shields the bows and arrows the war clubs and spears for seven years they will use them for fuel they will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forests because they will use the weapons for fuel And they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them, declares the Sovereign Lord. Israel is going to have all her heating bills met by the invaders because the weaponry is going to provide their heating for the future. And the the weapons themselves are going to be used as fuel. Now there's two ways to understand this. You can understand it that it will be ancient weapons again and there are people who are very concerned about the fact that in the future actually we may see a return to ancient type of warfare Islam has made it no secret that she's the religion of the sword and the sword features a lot in the warfares of the Bible we also have great concerns about what's going to happen with solar flares and things. Um, just recently, we, we had uh, alerts about solar flares, and I talked to, uh, some time back about technology in the last days. A solar flare from the sun can create an electromagnetic pulse which can knock out all the electricity. We're talking about Russia, and you know, just recently, Russia is in the news uh, because she is now building a space weapon that is a fascinating thing because that's breaking the 1967 space treaty between nations that they will never do that uh, but they have decided they are going to and the impact of a space weapon would not only be to shoot out satellites which would knock out your air traffic control and all things like this causing chaos but it would also create an electromagnetic pulse We know that because we've detonated bombs in the stratosphere, which have done the same. Um, And it basically fries all your electricity. So it may be that these weapons are actually vintage weapons again at the time of this warfare. But it may be that they are modern weapons that they also burn as well. Obviously, you can use nuclear things, uh, but there are other answers to this. Uh, There's a fascinating thing being used at the moment, which is called lignostone. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Lignostone is a Dutch production of wood, which is compressed wood with resin, and it's incredibly strong, and they use it in engineering. They now use it to make cogs for things, and they use it in armaments. And the reason for using it in armaments is with electromagnetic mines, wood doesn't trigger them off which is what everybody wants these days, protection against mines being laid all over the the place. So uh, lignestone actually burns better than coal. So if that is what it is, then there's a a simple explanation here for this Bible passage in our own day. We'll have to wait and see how it comes to pass. But for seven years, they're going to be using the weapons for fuel. So God is actually going to pay the bills for the heating and the electricity by these weapons being left behind in their land. Not only that, but they're also, in the aftermath, they're going to bury the dead in verses 11 through to 14. And this is a fascinating thing. You don't normally bury your enemies, but they are going to bury their enemies in the land of Israel. And uh, he says in verse 11, on that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who travel east towards the sea. It will block the way of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So be called the valley of Haman Gog. So there is going to be a burial of all these soldiers who God has killed by his response to their invasion and they are going to be buried in a, in a new graveyard which isn't in existence yet. Again, another key that this hasn't been fulfilled, but it's going to be on the east side of the Dead Sea at a place called Hamona, that's the city of Hamon Gog, the burial place of Gog. And uh, it's going to be... Uh, something that the travelers meaning the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the feast are going to have to go around because you don't go over dead bodies in Judaism because that is defiling uh, in in Judaistic law if you read Numbers chapter 19 so they're going to have to go around but it's interesting because the people are going to be out there burying them for seven months uh, and it's going to take a long time to search out all the dead people and bury them. In verse 12 through to 16, we're told that they go around. And verse 15 says, as they go through the land and one of them sees a human bone, he will set up a marker beside it until the grave diggers have buried it in the valley of Hammond-Gog. And the burial procedure is such, if you see someone, you don't touch it. You mark where the body is, but you don't go near it. Now, that is a very interesting thing in light of our modern day, because that is the procedure for nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. You don't touch dead bodies because you could get it yourself. You mark it and leave it to the professionals to come and bury it. And God says he's going to destroy these people with plague, whether that's their own chemicals turned against them by accident or whether or not God is going to inflict a plague like he did on Egypt. Uh, We'll wait and see. But they're going to follow that same drill. Don't touch it. Leave it to the professionals to come and bury it. And they will bury it in this special burial site. The other thing about being where they are is you'll notice they're downwind. And they're not going to be when the wind blows. It's not going to be blowing uh, uh, anything towards their cities. So, what an interesting burial procedure! But they're not only going to, you know, get rid of their enemies. They're going to be they're going to be gone, gone, gone. And that's what the point of this is. And in verse fifteen to twenty-one, we see Israel will also behold a feast that's going to take place because uh, in verse sorry 17 to 20 we see the feast uh, that God is going to make for the carrion birds and the wild beasts verse 17 son of man this is what the sovereign lord says call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, there you will eat flesh and drink blood. And as quickly as the people are trying to bury them, the animals are going to do their share of it as well. And God is going to call for the wild animals and especially the birds, the carrion birds. He mentioned that earlier on um, back in verse 4, I think it was, to come and feast on these dead bodies as well, so that they help with the cleanup of this operation. Now, that's an interesting thing, because what you have in Ezekiel's prophecy is a reversal of the situation. God is going to call the animals, going to call the carrion birds to feast on them. They were coming down to feast on Israel. God's actually going to call his creatures down to feast on him. But you also have a reversal of the sacrificial system. Because if you think about it, in the Old Testament, you had human beings who offered animal sacrifices to God. But here in this verse, God says, I'm going to offer human beings as a sacrifice, a sacrificial meal, and the animals will eat it. So it's a, a very interesting twist, uh, if you're biblically minded, to the Old Testament. But this is the point, uh, this aftermath is going to happen, and God is going to get the total victory over israel's enemies when they come against them this is something for us to really take encouragement from you know what i think that we christians are actually a little bit too timid we need to remember who our god is and that he is with us he is with us. And when we're fighting battles uh, or in difficulties, let's remember the great God who will deliver Israel out of the hands of their mighty enemies, overwhelming enemies Russia, Iran, you know, and He is going to deliver them like that. You know, one of the people I admire very much is Martin Naimuller. And Martin Neumuller, uh was a Christian in Germany in the 1930s. And in 1934, the actual date was January the 25th, 1934, Adolf Hitler called all the church leaders to his office because he was putting in place what was called a muzzling order. Basically, he was saying, you're not allowed to preach whatever you want. You can only preach what I tell you. And you cannot preach against what we're doing. That's what he was doing, he was trying to muzzle the people. And he said, I'm the one who's going to look after the German people. Now, as they were leading, leaving, Martin Neumüller had the courage to turn around and ha- say to Hitler, You said that I will take care of the German people but we too as Christians have a responsibility towards the German people and neither you nor anyone in this world has the power to take it from us you talk about being bold to Adolf Hitler and uh, and he was bold you know John Bunyan said you have no one to fear if you fear God Let's make sure our fear is of the Lord and that we take encouragement of this and we're bold Christians. I like that little saying, if Jesus is your rock, be a little bolder. Okay, the final part of this here is the awareness here. And we'll finish. I'm sorry to keep you. The awareness. Because in verse 21, uh, we see that there's an awareness that comes on Israel and the nations. Verse 21, God says, I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord Their God. One of the effects of this war and God's deliverance of Israel is going to be an awareness that is going to come on Israel and not only on Israel, on the nations of the world. That the Lord is their God. In fact, if you've been sensitive, you would have noticed it all the way through. Verse 7, God said, I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned and the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. And he said at the end of verse 15 that this was going to be a memorable day for them. They were going to remember what God did. In other words, there would be a new feast like the feast of Esther or Hanukkah or whatever. As they remember what God has done. And a new awareness is going to come across the nations that the Lord is the God of Israel. You know, this is going to be, as I said last week, the answer to our prayer when we pray the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be thy name. It's going to come on the nations of the world when God brings the fulfillment of the Gog and Magog invasion. And uh, it's going to bring a worshipping heart to those who are believers at that time. John Calvin said, we cannot conceive him in his greatness without being immediately confronted by his majesty and so compelled to worship him. And I agree with that it will also bring humility and repentance because in verse 23 to 24 the nation of israel will realize and even the nations will realize that they went into exile for their sins and uh, it wasn't because god was finished with the jews but it was because of their sins and hopefully that will set the heart motions in in place ready for the later repentance of israel to the lord jesus christ So what a great result will come as a result of this. So dear friends, if you're in a battle, I hope you're encouraged today. I hope you're encouraged. There are storms in life. And there's a great storm that's going to come on Israel. But the same one who stood up in the little boat on the Lake of Galilee and said, Be still and stop the storm, is the one who's going to do this in the land of Israel by his power in the future. And he can do it in your life as well. And if you're not a Christian yet, I want to urge you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you're going to face storms in your life too. In fact, the very end of your life is going to be a huge storm. And you need Christ as your savior. One of the great preachers of the past was Robert Murray Machane. And he said this. He said, the unconverted have got no peace in the hour of trouble. And it's true. They have no anchor when the storm rages, no fountain of peace, no cover from the tempest. What an awful and miserable thing it must be to be without peace when the storm comes. It must surely be an important thing to get into Christ before trouble and sickness and death comes. And if you're not in Christ, I want to say, get into Christ. Put your trust in him and come to know him in a real way thank you for listening